You're listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Altus. We are in our second Corinthians series. Now here's our pastor, Dr. Jeff Moore. If you got your Bibles this morning, let's go back to Second Corinthians. We're going to finish up the end of chapter 2 and slip over into chapter 3. I think there's a continuation of thought there. Remember, Paul's relationship with the Corinthians was an interesting one. I've said of all the churches that God used Paul to start, if they were his children, I think this was his strong-willed problem child, was Corinth. A lot of challenges at the Corinthian church. He wrote, I believe, four different letters, what you and I know as First and Second Corinthians, a painful letter and a tearful letter, or bitter letter, one, people call it, one person called it, or some writers call it. We have two of those letters reserved for us. Remember part of what's going on in the backdrop, in the background of this particular book. False teachers have come in and said, you shouldn't have listened to Paul. He's not really an apostle. You made a mistake. His teaching was wrong. Listen to us. And they didn't really defend Paul. Not everybody jumped on that bandwagon, but some of them did. Some of them just joined in with the critics. Others remained strangely silent and didn't defend the apostles. So that is sort of running in the background of this entire letter that you and I know as 2 Corinthians. One thing I always appreciated about Paul, and one thing I saw, I've seen him do in most of his letters, especially in these Corinthian letters, he always brings them back to Jesus and to the gospel. Remember back in the first letter, second chapter, he said, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Just kept bringing it back to focus, kept bringing it back to the main things. Folks, many a church have gotten sidetracked, distracted, off base, and out of bounds because they have gotten off on many, many things. Issues, circumstances, stances, all those kinds of things. If we will stick with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we'll never go wrong. We'll just never go wrong if we stick with the glorious gospel of who Jesus is and keep making that great proclamation, Jesus Christ, God's Son, saves. I think if we'll stick with that, we'll be doing quite well. So let's check it out this morning. Let's look at it. The power of the gospel, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Paul paints this picture of a, of a triumph, really sort of like a victory parade, if you will. Let's look at it together, verses 12 through 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, 12 and 13, I just want to briefly point something out to you. Paul, I don't know about you, I tend to do this. I look at men like Paul, Peter, Moses in the Old Testament, Abraham. I have a tendency to put them on such a pedestal, I forget sometimes they were just human like me and you. Such heroes of the faith, so, so many powerful testimonies and stories. If you pay attention to what Paul is saying there, Paul is saying, I was going about my business, but I was so worried about Titus, I was distracted. A couple of weeks ago when I preached to you, if you remember, Paul talked about being so distressed even to the point of death. Thought his life was over. Paul was a human being. He faced fears and he faced struggles and he faced concerns. 
And he's simply showing us his humanity in what he wrote to these different churches and these letters that he wrote. And then he introduces something in that 14th verse that might be a little bit foreign to us. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. The Romans called it a triumphus. Think about those ancient days when they would go out and fight against another group, another city, another army, and they would win. They would capture the surviving members of that army and they would march them back to their home city and parade them around in front of everybody and they would become their slaves. And that triumphal entry, that triumphal marching around was a way of showing the victory that, that we won, our side won. And those prisoners were really sort of spoils of war, if you will, brought in in, in, in a triumphus. Well, Paul uses that picture to say that God, through Christ, marches us around in a triumphal procession. We are products and spoils of war, if you will. We're trophies of His grace. Now, now think about that with me for a minute. What? No, you're not. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. We belong to Him now. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He is our Master. We answer to Him. He laid down His very life for us. And so now, just like a conquering general coming back to the city with these people that he had conquered and marching them through the city streets and saying, look at what I've got, Jesus, in a sense, marches us around, so to speak, and says, look at the change in these lives. I want to remind us of some things this morning. First and foremost... Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest decision that anybody can ever make is to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of their soul. That's it. In fact, I'll just get biblical with you. What would it profit you if you gained the whole world but you lost your own soul? You'd gain nothing. You've got to have Jesus. And in a world full of darkness and confusion right now, let me be clear. Jesus made a very clear statement. He said of himself, he said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man... No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the only way. So either he was telling us the truth or he was lying to us. Either he was right or he was wrong. Either he was delusioned and mistaken or he was exactly what he said he was. I choose to believe that he was telling us the truth. I choose to believe that he was right. I choose to believe this morning that Jesus Christ is the only way. Now here's the good news. The Bible says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not an exclusive club. God invites anyone, whosoever would, anyone and everyone. If you recognize that you need salvation, you cannot save yourself, most of us, if we get honest, we don't even live up to our own standards, do we? You ever disappoint yourself? You ever get mad at yourself? We all do it, don't we? Well, we don't measure up to God's perfect and holy standard. There is a great gulf fixed between us and all of our righteousness and all of our efforts and all of our checking the proverbial boxes and going through the motions cannot and will not bridge that gap. (laughs) But there is a cross of Jesus. There's an empty tomb. There's a relationship with the Son of God. Through Jesus, now that great gulf is bridged and now we call Him Abba Father. He's our God and we're His people. And we belong to Him. Let's remember this morning... Salvation is not about making bad people good. Salvation is about making dead people alive. 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins, unable to save yourself, separated from God, and you trusted in Jesus, and now you are truly born again. You've got life anew, brand new, in Jesus Christ. But Christian, think about this with me for a minute. Not only did, did the Lord answer that prayer the day you got saved, whatever you prayed. For me, my prayer went something like this. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that you died for me, and I believe you rose again. Please come into my heart and save me in Jesus' name. That was the prayer I prayed. Whatever prayer you prayed. I, I heard a fellow one time, uh, when I was in high school, went out with the pastor on visitation. We shared the gospel with the family. They wanted to pray to receive Christ. We, we held hands around their dining room table. And the dad in that family, here's what he prayed. He said, oh, Lord, help me. But I'm going to tell you something. He meant every word of that. And that old boy got saved. I saw the fruit in his life. That guy got right with Jesus that night. Because he invited, that was his way of crying out. Whatever it was that you prayed when you asked Jesus into your heart, when you cried out for salvation, God heard and answered that prayer. He said he would. But aren't you thankful that's not the last prayer God answers? God keeps answering prayer. God keeps giving victories. God keeps caring for us. God keeps providing. God keeps directing. God keeps protecting. God keeps showing us his will. Keeps working in us, around us, and through us. And you think about the power of God. There's no greater display of God's triumph, God's power, than when we got saved. But ladies and gentlemen, the story doesn't stop there, or at least it's not supposed to. God's still working. God's still moving. God's still blessing. And we are still giving glory and testimony to Him every time He does. That's the way our lives are supposed to look and supposed to be day in and day out. It's a powerful picture of these Roman soldiers, these generals parading these people around and saying, look at what I did. You and I are to be the salt and the light. We're to be on display showing the world what God's power has done in our lives. Secondly, pleasing to the Lord. Now look at this, this picture he paints in verses 15 through 17. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to another a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, what Paul does is he takes, I think, an Old Testament picture. Remember in the Old Testament, the idea of the sacrifices? They would take the animals to the priest at the temple those animals that he prescribed through Moses, what that was supposed to look like and what that was supposed to happen. And then those sacrifices would be made and placed on the altar and there would be a burnt offering. Well, it doesn't take much to figure out as an offering is being burned up before the Lord, the smoke is rising, the, the scent of that, the smell of that, the aroma of that is rising up to God. Several times in the Old Testament, in reference to that scene, God described it as a pleasing aroma to him that he recognized that those animals being offered up in sacrifice to him were a blessing, they were pleasing to him, they were done for him. And let's remember something. Sacrifice doesn't mean you give out of the abundance or out of what's left over. Sacrifice means that it really costs you something. Remember that scene in the temple when Jesus is there with the disciples and all these people are coming by and putting their offerings in and a little widow lady puts in two of the smallest coins in their coinage in that day, two little mites, they were just fractions of a penny. And uh, if you've ever been over there, you can get replicas of those things. If you go to Israel, there are uh, local businessmen 
who believe with all of their heart you flew to their country just to buy those things from them. When you get off the bus there, I promise you they're there. And they have replicas. You can buy a whole bag of those things for just a few bucks, but they're the tiniest little, I don't know, even smaller around than a pencil, the littlest, tiniest little things you've ever seen. But this widow goes over there to the offering and puts those in. And Jesus, of all those people that made offering that day, she's the only one that Jesus pointed out. Remember what he said? The others gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. What a sacrifice it was. Well, a sacrifice is pleasing to the Lord. Those burnt offerings were an aroma that went up to God and, and it pleased the Lord. Now, what do you think was the best sacrifice and the greatest sacrifice? What do you think pleased him the most? Jesus dying on the cross, his own son. That was the greatest sacrifice, not a burnt offering, but laying down his life in sacrifice. He says, we are a fr the fragrance of God. But notice in verse 16, uh, excuse me, back up verse 15, for those uh, who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, but to the other a fragrance from life to life. What's Paul pointing out? Well, I will tell you, the gospel is a dividing line. It really is a dividing line. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning, if you want to think about the right way to look at people, there really are to only be two considerations. Are you lost or are you saved? And really everything else is moot. Nothing else matters. doesn't matter what you look like or how much money you got or where you're from. He that has the Son of God has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. That's what John wrote in 1 John. These things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the only thing that God looks at. He's looking into your heart. Do you know his son? Have you been born again? The gospel is a dividing factor. Those that have received it and have accepted it are children of God. And those that have rejected it, well, Paul says they're perishing. Ladies and gentlemen, as plain as I know how to be, if you trust in Jesus, you spend eternity in heaven. If you reject Jesus, you spend eternity in hell. It's just that simple. But again, the good news is, he would that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And he offers the gift to whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. God's not being unfair in that whole scenario. God's offer is available to anyone and everyone. It's a choice that you and I must make to accept it or to reject it. And so it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord, but, and it is everybody else sees that and everybody else recognizes that. Now notice what he says at the end about his own ministry in verse 17. Well, then verse 16 asks a rhetorical question. Who's sufficient for these things? And the answer expects the, the question expects the answer, no one is. So how does he answer it? Well, he says, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. Now, I think you know what that means already. Not long ago, a year or two ago, time gets away, some gentleman, some of you could probably tell me his name, and I don't want to know it, but... Some fellow went on television and said that God told him he needed a new $65 million jet so that he could go around and tell people about Jesus. Now, here's what I thought. I've been to lots of airports. You know what? They got jets running out their ears at every one of those places. You go down to DFW, there's more jets than you can shake a stick at. And they'll sell you a seat, just one seat on that thing. And it's not 60, it's pretty expensive, but it's not $65 million expensive to go climb onto one of those airplanes and fly somewhere to go tell people about Jesus. In other words, the absence of a $65 million jet was not preventing this brother from going out and doing the work of the Lord to share the gospel. But he went on television 
and said, I've got to have a new jet for $65 million. Do you all remember Oral Roberts? You remember that name? What was it he said several years ago? Now, if, if they didn't raise, was it $4 million? God was going to kill him. Well, what does that even mean? Why would you say that? But he goes on television and says, we've got to raise $4 million or God's going to, you know, take me out. Well, okay, let me just say as one who's been in the pulpit for 30-something years, don't make your people that offer. Don't do that. Because some of them are going, you know what? First of all, ain't got $4 million, and let's just see what happens. Let's just see if he's really a prophet of God. You know, what's the downside here? Okay, be careful about that. Peddlers of God's word, taking advantage of people in the name of preaching, in the name of the gospel, in the name of God's message, trying to gain personally out of that deal. You understand the idea. You remember what Jesus did when he went into the temple? My father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers, and he overturned the tables and drove them out. Not God's plan for this deal. Paul says, we're not like those peddlers of God's word, but we're men of sincerity now notice that language, commissioned by God, in the sight of God. Now that, and we speak in Christ. In Christ. And there's that picture of, really, I think of agency. Where does the power come from? Where does the strength come from? Where does the glory come from? It comes from Jesus. It's not Paul's cleverness or Paul's education or Paul's personality or Paul's charisma that gave power to it. Ladies and gentlemen, you can have the most charismatic and polished person stand up and give a speech, but if the Holy Spirit of God's not moving, it's just a speech. Only God can move through a message and change somebody's heart. And by the way, that's not only true for the guy preaching in the pulpit on Sunday, that's true when you and I are talking to a lost friend or praying with someone who's hurting or ministering to a neighbor who's going through a rough patch. Whatever it is that we're doing in the name of the Lord for the glory of the Lord and obedience to the Lord, the Holy Spirit must empower that activity or it's just simply not going to work. We're going to go through the motions. We might say a few good things, but there's not going to be any power in it. So Paul wants them to understand as they're criticizing him, as they're joining in with the false teachers and saying, yeah, Paul's no good. He wants them to understand, look, we are here to please the Lord, and when we're pleasing to the Lord, God blesses it. And oh, by the way, how do we please the Lord? In Christ. That's where our power comes from. Now, Christian, what do you think your spiritual life is all about, your Christian life is all about? You know, a whole lot of people think, well, I'm going to heaven when I die. Yes, you are, Christian. What's well, about my sins being forgiven? Yes, your sins are forgiven. It's about the blessings God gives me. Yes, you're a blessed person if you're a child of God. But ladies and gentlemen, God did not save us just for those things. God saved us to glorify Him and to serve Him and to honor Him and to obey Him, to be pleasing to the Lord. Like that aroma of that burnt offering at the temple in Jerusalem in the days of old, rising up to the heaven and God smiling and being pleased. So our lives should be that way every day that God looks upon our lives and smiles and says, good job, son, good job, daughter, I'm proud of you. That's the way that it's supposed to be. God didn't save us just to sit back and soak it up and wait for glory to come. God saved us to honor Him, serve Him, obey Him, to glorify Him, to be pleasing to Him. And Christians, hear me. The world in which we're living today, it's getting harder and harder and harder to be a committed, devoted, Bible-believing Christian 
in this dark and dying world out there. But hear my heart this morning, hear the truth this morning. Your calling is to glorify God, not to try to win people's approval. And a lot of Christians compromise their faith in trying to, you know, gain approval, gain acceptance, going along with the crowd. I promise you, when you and I get to glory, it's not going to be how many likes we got or how many votes we got. We're going to face the God of the universe, and none of that's going to matter. What is going to matter is how we served Him and how we obeyed Him. Pleasing to the Lord. Don't be afraid and don't be ashamed. You've got the greater victory. You've got the greater power in your life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he talks about, uh, I call it letter of recommendation because that's what the Bible talks about. But let's look at it. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now you see some of that backdrop kind of coming into the foreground here. And those questions that he asks at the beginning of that chapter all expect a negative answer. Again, in the Greek language, you can rearrange the sentence order, and by the way you rearrange it, it's perfectly proper and acceptable. In fact, it's expected. And basically, it's something like this. Um, we don't need to commend ourselves to you again, do we? No, we don't. We don't need letters of recommendation to you or from you, do we? No, we don't. It has that sort of expect, expectation of a negative response. Paul's saying, we've already proven ourselves. And here's maybe some of the line of logic going on here. Okay, Corinthians, you're criticizing me, Paul, and, and, and the others who ministered to you. But you accepted the message we preached to you, made a difference in your lives. You're, you're proclaiming it every Sunday. You're preaching it, teaching it, and singing about it. You can't have it both ways. If we were so bad and if we were so wrong, then why did you accept the gospel that we presented to you? You see that contradiction? And notice what he says. <laughs> well, let me back up for a minute. Think about this with me for a minute. Do we need to commend ourselves? Do you remember what... Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, you remember what he carried with him as he went out to persecute the churches? He had letters, didn't he? Letters from the church to go out and stop this Jesus movement thing that was going on. Letters of commendation, letters of recommendation. Um, probably the funniest thing that ever happened to me by way of me being introduced somewhere. Old buddy of mine, in fact, he's my best friend's dad, old Clinton Murphy started, if you, if you know Murph's guns, or go over and get a Murph's ham over there during the holidays. Old Clinton started that deal back in the 50s. He and my dad were big buddies, and I, Craig and I grew up together. We're still good friends to this day. And Clinton came to me one time, this was back in the 90s, he goes, Jeff, I go up to Nebraska, I knew they did this, I go up to Nebraska every year and pheasant hunt in a little town called Wilsonville, Nebraska, right down the southwest corner. Think the Hollis of Nebraska, right down southwest corner okay tracking with me he said in this little town they had a baptist church and a christian church they both lost their pastors they're both at the point of death so they combined that's an interesting combination by the way so anyway he said they don't have a pastor he said i want to take you up there and um, i want you to preach for him he said I'll, I'll, I'll cover your costs and everything you go up there and, and i'll take you pheasant hunting and you get to preach i locked up on point right there i said yes sir i locked down right there i mean i was ready to go so we, we go up there, this little deal. We go into Sunday school that Sunday morning. 
And a very kind gentleman, very nice fellow was in there. I don't know where they got their literature. It was not from Nashville, I can assure you. The lesson was on depression. And let me just say, it worked. I was, that was the most depressing Sunday school class I ever sat in in my life. Absolutely effective. This guy talked about the difference between clinical depression and all these different things. I'm going, really? Wow. So we get to the worship service. And a gentleman gets up and he goes, you all know Mr. Murphy. He comes from Oklahoma. He's been very generous to our church. Now he brought somebody with him this time. He said, I don't have any idea who he is. And said, if he can't preach, don't blame me. Come on. That was my introduction. True story. Well, me being me, I thought, oh, in my mind, in my mind, it was, it was the Coliseum in Los Angeles and Billy Graham just had, he just broke his vocal cord and they called on me. You know, this mattered. I was gonna prove myself to these people. And oh, I mean, I preached my heart out that morning. Really did. They didn't have Sunday night church and they said, well, would you come back tonight and preach for us? I'm like, oh, okay, gonna have to make something up. Yeah, sure. So we had church that night, really developed a sweet relationship with those folks. That, that night, sweet little family comes up to me. It was a mom and a dad and a little six-year-old girl. And the man really blessed my heart. He said, you know, today at lunch, that, our daughter said, Daddy, I really like to hear that guy talk. I wished I could live where he lives so I could hear him preach all the time. That blessed me. And I leaned down and I looked at her and I said, Honey, where I'm from, we say boomer sooner. Can you say that? And the mom goes, No, she cannot. <laughs> Corn shuckers from Nebraska. I mean, corn huskers, sorry. Those Nebraska corn huskers. You'd have thought I was trying to give that girl whiskey. Honey, would you like a sip of whiskey? No, she will. You know, can you say, but no. I mean, it was, it was taboo. All of a sudden, the love was gone <laughs> from that, that old boy from Oklahoma that came to preach. Well, it's interesting, these letters of commendation. And then Paul says, you know what? I don't need something written on paper. He said, Cor Corinthians, you you are our letters of recommendation. Your changed lives testify to the power of the gospel. Didn't the gospel change your life, Christian? Didn't it make a difference in you? Changed your outlook, changed your perspective, changed how you see people and see life and see the today and tomorrow and the future? It changes everything about us. Think about that evangelist I heard years ago back in the 70s. He talked about, he said, every church I went to, they wanted to show me those those silly trophy rooms. And somewhere in the church, there would be this room full of cabinets, full of shelves with all of these plastic and wood trophies from softball and volleyball and basketball. And he said, yeah, I'll always be kind and polite. I was their guest. Okay, gonna show me your trophy room. Great. Went to a church. The preacher said, you wanna see our trophy room? Sure. He said, I was so pleasantly surprised. Walked into this room and on the wall were photographs of people they'd led to Christ and baptized. And he said, this is our trophy room to the glory of God. It's the best trophy room I ever heard about right there. Do you th realize, Christian, you and I are trophies of God's grace. Living testimonies that there is a God, that God makes a difference in us, that He is real, that Christ has saved us, that the power and presence and Spirit of God dwells inside of us and leads us and helps us and comforts us and directs us and all those glorious things. Do you realize what an opportunity is ours to be the salt and to be the light? That the greatest witness, the greatest testimony can be your changed life lived out faithfully in front of somebody else who desperately needs that same change in his or her life. Oh, there's power in the gospel, isn't there? Power in the gospel. Do you know Jesus this morning? 
Have you been saved? I didn't ask if you're a church member. I didn't ask if you've been in the water. I'm asking you, do you know Jesus this morning as your Savior and Lord? And if you know Jesus this morning as your Savior and Lord, do other people know that about you? Can they see it? Can they hear it? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the power of the gospel to change, to change a heart, to change a life, to give comfort, strength, and direction day by day. Father, thank you today for those who know Jesus, who've been born again, and have had that radical change take place. Father, if there be one under the sound of my voice who's never trusted in Jesus, God, I pray today be that day that he or she realize that they need forgiveness, they need power beyond their own. And Father, for believers today who maybe need a fresh start, a new beginning, a deeper commitment, and God, I pray today be that day as well that we'd realize that our job is to walk in triumphal procession behind you, giving you all the glory and you all the praise. So, Father, would you move just now? Would you work just now? Lord, would you bind the enemy from this place that's already whispering in somebody's ear and giving them excuse? Father, would you get rid of all the distractions and anything that would take away from the movement of your spirit in this moment? And, Father, would you allow this to be a powerful and a special time where your power moves and works among us and we hear and respond and lives are forever changed. Lord, may it be so for your glory and not ours. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Altus Podcast. For more information about our church and ministries, visit us at www.fbcaltus.org.